back when I was in the, uh, the fourth grade, I was in Mrs. Damro's class at Spring Mills Elementary uh, in Highland, Michigan, just a little bit south of he here. Uh, and like a lot of fourth graders, my favorite subject in school was recess. Any of you uh, fall into that category, or like recess? You guys are liars. There should be way more hands up than that. Uh, I loved recess. Recess is the bomb. I kind of wish we still had recess. Like, I might institute recess at the Grumlaw offices. It's like this great opportunity to go outside and blow off some steam and shoot hoops and play basketball and play kickball. I mean, recess was seriously the best. And I, I feel like I loved maybe recess even more than, like, the average kid, which is why I'm, what I'm about to tell you was, like, particularly maddening for fourth grade Shay. Uh, Mrs. Damro, our teacher, was actually gracious enough that every single day at lunch, rather than going into like the teacher's lounge and eating with like the other staff members, what she would do actually is she would stay back in the classroom and would allow kids, if they so chose, to stay in the classroom and like put together like a puzzle or like do a board game that had like an educational twist. And like, I remember when she threw that out the first time, I'm like, well, nobody's gonna do that. I mean, give me a break. But wouldn't you know it, there was like the same three, four, five kids that every single day would stay inside and put together a puzzle rather than going outside and being pummeled by me in kickball. Like, I was like, what the heck is wrong with these kids? And I'm kind of kidding about this, but I'm serious that back then, this was maddening to me. It like almost made me angry. I could not believe that a kid would make such, in my mind, such an incredibly foolish, foolish decision. And I remember it was about two months in, into the school year and uh, it was, came this time. It's like, all right, everybody line up for recess. And those same three or four kids would go over by the table and you know, act like they're about ready to get after the puzzle again. And I'm like, what is wrong with these kids? And so in the back of my mind, like I can't really tell you where it came from. You know, dare I call it, it was maybe even a temptation crept up in the back of my mind, almost this small, still voice that was telling me, Shay, you need to do something about this. You need to take this into your own hands. You need to help these kids understand that this is a terrible idea to stay inside and put together a puzzle. But I remember that first day, I was like, no, 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 I'm not gonna do anything about this. And like, I just kind of shook that feeling and you know, went out to recess. But wouldn't you know, the next day, that same feeling, it was back. That same little temptation was back in the back of my head telling me to do it. Come on, do something about this. And then this idea crept up inside of my head. And again, I had never seen this before. Nobody told me to do this. I didn't see it in a movie. I didn't see it in a television show. But, but again, there was this little idea, this temptation in the back of my head telling me, grab a couple of the puzzle pieces. Come on, grab them. Just do it. Just do it. And so I'm on my way out to recess. I kind of make sure I'm in the back line. Nobody's paying attention. And I grabbed like four or five puzzle pieces in my hand. But again, I had no plan from this point forward. And I was like, what the heck am I supposed to do with these? And so I'm walking out to recess with my fist clenched with the puzzle piece in my hand. And I wander into the bathroom, proceed to throw them in the toilet, and flush the toilet. And that was what I did for like the next five days. I would take these puzzle pieces, flush them down the toilet, and then I'd get going out to recess. And I did this every day until the puzzle was done, or at least it was like 75% done, and they ran out of pieces. And Mrs. Damro thought this was particularly perplexing because she's going, that was a brand new puzzle. One or two pieces, that would make sense. 25% of the puzzle gone, that doesn't make any sense. And so she took a, pic, a quick poll of the classroom, and wouldn't you know it, there was a kid that saw me one day. He didn't know what I did with them, but he saw me swipe the pieces, and you know, fourth graders, a bunch of rats, you know, they'll tattle on you so stinking quick. And I got told on, I got ratted out in front of everyone. I remember it was this big ordeal, and my parents came into school, and I had to confess, they're like, where did you put the puzzles? Can you give them back to the kids? I'm like, no, I flushed them down the toilet. And my dad is like, what? 
Why would you do that? I'm like, Dad, these kids didn't want to go out to recess. They'd rather play with the puzzle. He's like, that makes a lot of sense, actually. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. That was a rough day in the life of Shay Prisk. Now, I was a little kid then, a little fourth grader, actually, you know, a little fourth grade punk. But the great news is, as adults, we know this, right? Temptation just goes away. We don't have to experience temptation anymore. Obviously, I am being completely facetious. In fact, the argument could be made that the temptations are actually far greater as adults and usually, as a result, in turn, have far more severe consequences. See, as a kid, you get tempted to flush puzzle pieces down the toilet and you do it and you get caught and you get detention. As an adult, you get tempted to lie or cheat on your taxes and you get audited and now you are facing some very serious financial and legal consequences. As a kid... You get tempted to throw snowballs at cars, not saying I've ever done that, and you get caught and your parents ground you or they take like something away from you that you really like for a period of time. As an adult, you get tempted to look at something on your phone, on your computer that you know you shouldn't be looking at and, and your spouse catches you and like, ooh, okay, now you are facing some very serious consequences within the context of your marriage. In fact, as a kid, being a kid is of great benefit to you when you get caught, right? Because you get to say things like, I didn't know any better. I was a kid. And wouldn't you know it, adults actually agree with you. They're like, that's true. He was just a kid. Kids are stupid. They do stupid things all the time. Cut him a little slack. He's a little kid. They'll eventually figure it out. But guess what? That logic, that reasoning, those excuses don't quite stack up as an adult, do they? It doesn't really translate. You, you never hear anyone say, come on, he's just an adult. He didn't know any better. Come on, she is just an adult. She really didn't know any better. It doesn't really work, does it? In fact, even as I was preparing this message this week, I was like typing this out, and I'm like, this feels absolutely ridiculous to even put this down into words. We're not cut as much slack or really any slack at all as adults. We have to not only live with our poor decisions, but oftentimes the consequences, they, they span days, weeks, years in some cases. And virtually all of those poor decisions, virtually all of those terrible choices, they start out as temptation, temptation. And that's kind of where we're gonna be parking ourselves this morning as we wrap up this series called Pray. In fact, today, you're catching us literally right at the end. We're entering into part six of six. And what we've been doing in this series is we've been taking a look at how Jesus teaches us to pray. Not how I would teach you how to pray, not even how Grumlaw would teach you to pray, but again, how Jesus teaches us to pray. The very guy that predicted his own death and he predicted his own resurrection, and then it actually happened, so maybe we ought to pay attention a little bit to what he had to say. In fact, a couple thousand years ago, Jesus is approached by his 12 best friends. We often call them the 12 disciples, the guys that he spent so much time with when he was here on earth, and they very plainly ask him the question. They say, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? We, we, we want to understand how to do this correctly, because they, like all of us, have probably wondered from time to time, okay, how do I know I'm doing this right? How do I know the, the, the way that I'm praying is like the right way to be praying? And fortunately for all of us, Jesus very plainly answers their question. He says, hey, this is how you are supposed to do this. In fact, he says, pray like this, which is a really, really good thing for us because we don't have to wonder. We don't have to speculate on how to do this. And as we've unpacked throughout this series, we've seen that Jesus' intention was never to give us the exact words to pray. No, instead, what Jesus gave us is a model 
He gave us the framework for how to pray, and so that's what we've been doing throughout the series. We've been taking a look at this framework that, again, Jesus gives us for how to pray. Now, the reason that we've been doing this and the reason that we would spend six straight weeks talking about prayer, and I've said this every single week, so might as well say it one more time because this, this is important. If you're a Jesus follower and you're not spending quality alone time with God, I'm telling you, your relationship with God is absolutely suffering as a result. Your relationship with God is never going to go where God wants to take it if you do not make this a priority. Now, if you're not a Jesus follower, you're sitting here today, you're just kind of, you know, learning about this stuff, you're maybe, you know, interested, but you're not even sure if this whole Jesus guy actually exists yet. I mean, you're just kind of on the fringes of this whole faith journey. We still think you owe it to yourself to consider how Jesus teaches you to pray. Because if you ever take that step to put your faith in Jesus, and we really hope that you do that, If you ever cross that line and say, okay, I am a Jesus follower, the key to actually having intimacy with God, the key to actually having a relationship with God, it happens to lie in getting prayer right. Because most of us have probably never considered that prayer might be something that we actually learn how to do. But it's so crucial that we get this right because prayer is more important than probably any of us realize. And so if you haven't been here for every single week of the series, and even this, if this is literally your first week and you got five weeks of catch-up work to do, I cannot encourage you enough to please go to grumlaw.com slash messages. Get yourself caught up there. You can listen to the messages. You can watch the messages. Or you can find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast. And again, I'm begging you to do this. And it's not because I think I'm like such an incredible communicator. I'm, so, I'm like trying to boost my online presence. I, I promise that is not the case. But it really is because prayer is so much more important than any of us, including myself, probably realize. But before we kind of jump into this uh, final part, this final section to Jesus's model for how to pray, I'd like to pray for us right now, so allow me to do that. Father, we just say thank you so, so much that you are a God that cares so much about us, that you're a God that desires relationship with us, we, we, we thank you that you have preserved these words for us so we don't have to wonder because I know that that's been a real thought in my mind before. Like, okay, am, am I doing this right? How do I know the way that I'm praying is the right way to be praying? And you just come right out and you always just meet us right where we're at. And so we, uh, we ask God that you would do what only you can do in this room today. You would work how only you can work and uh, you would just kind of come and, and talk to us wherever we're at. Even if we just came in because we feel forced to be here. Uh, that we might be open to at least to whatever it is that you have to say to us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So again, as mentioned, this is the sixth, the final week. We have arrived at the final part of Jesus' model for how to pray. And this is what Jesus says here in this, this last section. He says, and don't let us yield to temptation. Don't let us give in to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. And as we kind of get started here this morning, I want to draw our attention to two words in particular uh, that if I'm honest, probably make all of us at least a little bit uncomfortable. And it's these two words right here, evil one, evil one. I'm going to be completely vulnerable with everyone today and let y'all know that I had like this debate inside of myself today. I was kind of arguing with God leading up to this week going like, God, do I really have to talk about this do I really have to talk about the, the evil one? Can't we just kind of skip by that part? Because it can be so confusing. It can be so incredibly intimidating. It can be, it has such an ability, talking about the evil one, the devil, Satan, it has such an ability to kind of turn people off. I, I, what's that all about, right? This idea of an evil one. I don't think any of us like the idea that there might be some evil one roaming around out there that's trying to screw our lives up. It seems a little bit kooky-madooky type thinking, right? I mean, it's like Harry Potter, 
Star Wars, the dark side type vibe, right? Like none of us really are okay probably with this idea that there might actually be an evil one out there. We don't really even want to entertain that thought because come on, let's be honest, it's, it's weird. It's strange. And if you're new to this whole church thing, if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, my, my guess is, is that this is probably about the last subject that you wanted to hear about today. In fact, there's probably a good number of you who are sitting here today who have probably been turned off by churches that seem to really take a liking to the evil one parts of the Bible. The churches that kind of try to scare you towards God by telling you of how terrible Satan is and how awful hell is going to be, right? That they're kind of trying to nudge you in that direction by telling you the opposite end of the spectrum. The street preacher that you've walked by that maybe some of you have in big cities that are yelling at you, repent, you better start living your life differently. You're gonna end up in hell. And you're like, okay, fine, I'll give Jesus a shot. And I just wanna reassure you this morning, we are never going to be that church. And you'll hear me say this from time to time. Jesus is too good to have to scare you with Satan. The message of Jesus is way too compelling. Jesus is far too good for me to feel the need to use devil, Satan, hell as a scare tactic to somehow push you in that direction. But I'll also say this, the evil one, the devil, Satan, whatever you want to refer to him as, is talked about way too much in scripture. In fact, he's talked about way too much by Jesus himself for us to just go on the complete opposite end of the spectrum and ignore him altogether. And I truly believe that that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, hey, we're not going to pay too much attention to the devil, the evil one. We're not going to give this guy too much credit. But it would be unwise for any of us to completely discount him and his existence in our world. And as much of us as we probably all don't want to admit this, no matter where you find yourself on this faith journey, I think deep down, we know that there's an evil one at play. Because every single one of us have, ex have experienced those moments where we're being tempted. And again, that's not a Christian thing. That's just a people thing. Where you're tempted to do something that you know you really shouldn't do. You're tempted to do something that, let's be honest, you don't really even want to do. And in that moment, you make it up in your mind, right? Like that, that temptation begins to creep up. That small little voice begins to kind of come in the back of your head. And you're like, no chance, not falling for that this time. There is a 0% chance that I am moving forward with that today. And nobody had to convince you of this. There was no other person beginning to talk to you. But wouldn't you know it, there's like this small little voice that creeps up in the back of your mind. And it starts telling you, do it. Come on, just do it. It's going to be sweet. You're going to love it. Do it. Come on, just do it. Do it. You're not going to regret it. Just do it, do it, do it. And wouldn't you know it, that very thing that you decided just moments earlier, that there was a 0% chance that you were going to do that, you're doing it. And almost immediately after making that decision, you're saying to you, nobody else has to say it to you, but you're looking at yourself in the mirror going, what am I doing? What is wrong with me? Why do I continue to do that? And Jesus would say, bingo. That's exactly what I'm talking about. As strange as it maybe sounds to you, that is the evil one baiting you into yet another terrible decision. Now again, if this sounds a little bizarre to you, again, I'm completely sympathetic to that because that was me for a long time and I grew up in a Christian home. I, I grew up going to church. I mean, this is something that we talked about in our home, but yet it really took me well into college for me to kind of figure this out and for me to actually come to grips with this. And it really stemmed from one conversation that I was having at the time with a guy that was just kind of an acquaintance, uh, but is now actually a pretty close friend. Now, I've shared a little bit about this before. When I was in high school, I, I did a lot of boneheaded things. I, I was out of control. I, I got in trouble a lot, drank a lot, 
did a lot of drugs, like not, not a good time for me. And I kind of carried that with me uh, into college. I ended up going to a small Christian university, but that was really only because my parents kind of gave me an ultimatum. They're like, you go to a state school, you're paying for all of it. You go to a Christian school, we'll pay for most of it. And I was like, easy enough, Christian school it is. And in this school, you kind of had to look for trouble. Like, it wasn't like a state school where there's a party every weekend. I mean, you kind of had to search and find it. And wouldn't you know it, that, that, that first semester at school, I mean, I really hunted for it, and I found that trouble. But about halfway through my freshman year, God really started to grab a hold of my life, and a lot of that came through, and again, I've shared about this before, through some friends that God kind of placed in my life that kind of started speaking life into me. And I was like, man, these guys just seem happier than I do. They seem to have less regrets than I do. And I began to change my life around. But wouldn't you know it, about every month, about once a month, I would make some decision where after making that decision, I would go, what am I doing? I've been so good for like three straight weeks, for four straight weeks, and here I am. I mean, making another stupid, stupid decision over and over again. What is wrong with me? Why can't I kick this habit? And I remember kind of, you know, sharing this frustration with this guy, this, this acquaintance of mine, this guy that lived in my hall, and, you know, tell him about this, and like, you know, I was so mad at myself, and he's like, yeah, man, I totally get it, man. It's the devil, you know, just kind of baiting you into another terrible decision. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, wait, no, not yeah, yeah. I was like, do you actually believe that? I've heard that talked about my whole life. Like, do you actually believe that that's like the devil, like somehow getting me to do something stupid? And with such confidence, he looked back at me. He's like, well, yeah, what do you think it is? And I'm like, I I don't know. Old habits die hard. I just feel like it's something going on inside of my head. I just keep doing stupid things over and over again. He's like, Shay, no doubt. Yeah, that's your choice. That's on you to actually make that decision. He's like, but you are crazy if you do not think that there is an evil one at play that is trying to trip you up again with those same things that he's been able to trip you up with in the past. And here this guy is explaining this to me, talking to me about this, and he was normal. He's like a normal guy. And so I remember from that day forward, I began to realize something, that ignoring the evil one only increases his grip on our lives. In fact, it plays right into his hand. He doesn't want to be known because when something is known in our lives, we take appropriate action against it. Ignorance might be bliss, but ignorance does not solve anything. Prior to my wife and I uh, moving up here to to start this church, we lived in Howell, and our house in Howell kind of had this unique layout to it. The master bedroom and master bathroom were actually in the basement. And so our master bathroom actually sat directly adjacent um, to our utility room in in the basement there. Now, still to this day, I like avoiding the utility room like the plague. I don't like going in there. It, It freaks me out. I don't know how to fix anything. It always seems like something's leaking or breaking. And then I'm just like shelling out money to some guy of telling me what's wrong. Like, okay, yeah, here, take more money. I hate money. Here, take it, take it, take it, right? So I don't like going in there. And I don't remember why that particular day I I wandered into the utility room. But I noticed on the one wall that would have sat directly adjacent to the shower in the master bathroom that there was some water at the bottom. In fact, about two inches up on the drywall, you could see that it was like damp. It was a different color. It was moist. And so I went and felt it and it was still wet. And you could even see how water had trickled across the concrete because it was really rusty. So you could see like the little trail that was consistently flowing from the shower, I suppose, through the drywall and then into the utility room. And what did I do? I walked away. I ignored it. I was like, don't want to deal with that. Out of sight, out of mind. I'm not interested in solving that problem. That looks like that's going to be expensive. God, heal that wall, right? I was like out of that room and just hoping that it was gonna take care of itself. Wouldn't you know it, two months later, I went back in there and guess what? Got worse, it got way worse. In fact, that water had crept about four feet up the drywall. 
And I was looking at what I assume was a far more expensive repair than had I dealt with it to begin with. It got way, way worse. It got significantly worse. And the same is true with the evil one. When we ignore his existence, we are playing right into his hand. The grip he has on our lives, it only tightens and our vices only get worse. Peter, who's one of Jesus' 12 disciples, uh, he writes this in 1 Peter, which is a book that we have again in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. He says, stay alert. Keep your head on a swivel. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Translation, the devil is alive and well and is looking, actively looking for ways to mess with your life. In fact, the word that is used here is devour. In case you don't know what that means, he's not looking to help you out. He's looking to make your life worse. Satan is always aware of our weak points and he presses in on them. Think about this. Lions go, you know, after the weak, the injured animals. They don't go after the healthy They don't go after the strong. He pursues us at our weakest moments with the stuff that he knows that we are already struggling with. He pursues us in those moments when we know like, oh my gosh, I know I shouldn't do this. And he attacks. He attacks us with those same things that he's been able to trip us up with in the past. And so wouldn't you know it, back when I was in college and once I kind of had that epiphany with that friend of mine, once I acknowledged him, the evil one, through prayer against his attacks, through accountability, Through that acknowledgement that then led to proactive behavior, I was able to get rid of that habit in my life. Ignoring the evil one, denying his existence, only plays right into his hand. James, who's actually the brother of Jesus, he writes this. He says, resist the devil. Resist him, and he will flee from you. He's a lion. He's smart. Once he recognizes that you're no longer easy prey, once he recognizes that you're no longer an easy target, he's moving on to something else. He's moving on to someone else. I can confidently look at all of you in in the eye this morning and, and tell you that I don't feel as tempted, I don't feel preyed upon as often as I did back when I was in college. And that has everything to do with those same two points because number one, in college, I was ignoring his existence. I was pretending like he wasn't there. And two, I was doing virtually nothing to resist him. Now, a quick side note here, and this is worth mentioning before we move on. I do not think that every single time that you do something wrong, I don't think that every single time that you sin, it's somehow the devil's fault. In the same way that some of you don't give the devil enough credit, others of you, you're giving them way too much credit. You like stub your toe and you're like, gosh dang it, devil's doing his thing again. You yell at your kids and you're like, sorry kids, that wasn't mommy, that wasn't daddy, the devil was just kind of, you know, doing his thing. Maybe, no doubt, sometimes it absolutely is the devil tempting us, sometimes it is the devil that's baiting us, but other times, let's be honest, it's your poor decision making. It's your bad habit that you are doing nothing, nothing to change. It might have been the devil tempting you on the front end, but come on, now it's all you. He just gets to sit back and watch. He's like, that's on you now. I'm not doing anything anymore. James earlier writes this. Again, Jesus' brother. That's a quick kind of side note there. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was the son of God? Okay, but moving on. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. He's saying, don't you dare put that on God. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. 
That word entice is actually like a hunting and, and, and fishing term. It's this idea of luring a fish, luring an animal away from its retreat. Um, and we are all familiar with fishing, obviously. We've all probably been fishing before. Okay, so I got a little fishing pole right here. And this is what the devil does to us, right? He, he gets the hook out. Should have put a weight on this thing. All right, and, and, he, and he dangles the hook in front of us. He's going, come on, take it, take it. Now, most of the time, just the hook, it doesn't work, right? Unless you're fishing on one of those lakes with a bunch of stupid bluegill, like you need to put something on there. Now, some of you guys are stupid bluegill and you're like, oh, sweet, a hook, and you just jump onto that. For the most part, though, it doesn't work out, right? Like just the hook, come on, take it, take it. And so what do we do? We try to spruce things up a little bit, right? So we come over and we uh, got some worms here. And we get a worm and we put that on there. Like this, you've all done this with your kids before. This is good stuff. These are sour worms. All right, and so that's what the devil does, right? He, he puts the worm on there, and he says, come on. There's not a hook there. Just take it. Come on. Just take it, James. It's delicious. <laughs> You're going to want this. Come on. <laughs> come on. He's trying to lure us away. He's trying to drag us away. He's saying, come on, come on, come on. Just take a bite of the worm. There's no hook there. Come on. Cinemax is free this month. Your wife ain't going to know she's already in bed. It's just a TV show. Come on. Just take it, take it, take it. And sometimes we bite on, and the fight is on. But other times we're smart enough. We go, no, 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 no. I've fallen that before. I, I've fallen into that temptation before. Not today, devil. So what does the devil do? Does he give up? No. He's like, all right, that ain't working today. Let's get rid of that worm. He says, how about this? I got something way more juicy. $100 bill, baby. And he starts dangling that in front of us. He's like, ah, oh, yeah, 100 bucks. Hey, that's real. Come on, somebody get it. He's like, don't go to church. Are you a fool? You're losing money there. They're telling you to put money into a bucket. What kind of a moron would do something like that? Come on, take it. Take it, take it. Hey, talk about Betsy. You saw what she did at work. It was so stupid. It's not really gossip. You're just telling a really good story. Come on, just do it, do it, do it, do it. And he tries to get us to take the money, to take the temptation. But if we're honest, even this isn't really a great representation of what the devil does to us, right? Because if we just had to resist one temptation, I mean, we probably all could stand up to that at certain points. No, living in America, in our Western world, in our modern culture, it's not just one thing. It's like a whole mess of things. This is really what like, we're experiencing here. You have to give me a second here. I, got, I brought props today. This is really what we're working with, right? It is all around us. It's like everywhere you turn, you're like, oh, girl, beer. Like, what am I doing here? Hang on to that imagery for a little bit. There we go. I'll set that right over there. Everywhere. Every single direction. And so what do we do? We just give up? We just throw in the towel? Just admit we're sinners and try to do a little bit better? I mean, that would be an inspiring message, wouldn't it? No. All of us are tempted every single day, all the time. So it would probably be a good idea if we planned ahead a little bit. And this is precisely what Jesus is advocating that we do when he says, and don't let us yield to, don't let us give in to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Just as we saw last week, there's kind of this cause and effect relationship here to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is acknowledging the very real role that the evil one plays in every single one of our lives. In fact, he's saying this, in order to resist temptation, we must be rescued. 
In order to resist temptation, we must be rescued. As I was preparing for this, I, I couldn't believe that like, I'd never really noticed this little nuance before. I, I find it interesting that Jesus uses the word rescue here. He uses the word rescue. I mean, he could have used help. He could have used assistance. He could have used guidance. But no, he chooses to use this word here, rescue. It conveys a far stronger sense of urgency. A rescue requires planning. A rescue requires strategy. A rescue requires thinking ahead. Have any of you guys ever seen those videos where like there's some ship and it's out in the middle of the sea and there's like 12 foot waves, it's storming. The boat's already like halfway under. The people are in complete panic mode as we all would be, right? I mean, they all think they're gonna die, that they're gonna drown out there. And then out of nowhere, some helicopter comes swooping in a basket comes, you know, dropping from the helicopter and there's these dudes, I assume they're like Coast Guard or something, right? And they're grabbing people off the ship and they're throwing them in the basket and they're all like, ah, oh, they're freaking out. But the people that are working, the guys that are doing the rescuing, they're just like, no big deal. Another day at the office. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's really not that big of a deal to us. I mean, this is what we do for a living. They're so calm. And it's because they planned ahead. They were prepared for that exact situation. And that is what Jesus is telling us to do here as part of his model. He's saying, pray on the offense. Pray on the offense. Plan ahead. Pray ahead. Be proactive. I am a diehard Michigan basketball fan uh, because it isn't fun to be a Michigan football fan. Too soon? Okay. Okay. I really am. I've always really liked Michigan basketball. In fact, I, I have, I will admit this in front of all of you, I have an unhealthy relationship with Michigan basketball. There's like two or three of you that have watched Michigan basketball games with me in this room. It's not a fun experience. It's super tense. I'm living and dying by every single shot. Now, this last season uh, for Michigan basketball is pretty historic. For those of you that don't follow sports, they actually made it to the national championship and nobody was predicting that. Now, granted, they got waxed by Villanova in the championship, but still, the fact that they made it that far was really ridiculous. Like, nobody expected that they would make it that far. Now, John Beeline, who's the coach of the team, in typical John Beeline team fashion, the team shot a lot of threes. They spread the floor. I mean, a really fluid and pretty incredible offense. But if you paid any attention to that team this past year, you knew that defense was winning a lot of their games. In fact, in that that run to the national championship, they were like brick cold, ice cold for a couple of those games, but it was defense that won them those games over and over and over again. And as good as that defense was, and, and everybody was acknowledging that, that, that followed basketball, as good as that defense was, it would have been really, really strange if I would have turned on a game and they refused to play offense. That every single time they got the ball, they're like, no, 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 where our defense is lights out this year. We're not even playing offense. We're just dedicating all energy to defense. Here's the ball back. We're ready. <laughs> Get down to the block, right? Like, that would have been weird, right? They would not have won a single game like that. But too often, as cheesy as this sounds, that is exactly what we do. We just react. We just wait for things to happen, even though we know it's coming. Rather than being on the offense, rather than thinking ahead, rather than praying ahead. That word temptation actually in its original Greek, and this is really, really interesting. Some of you guys know this, others of you do not. Uh, the New Testament, the second half of the Bible was actually uh, written in Greek originally. And that word temptation in its original Greek takes on uh, the meaning of testing. It doesn't take on this, this, this idea of you know, this enticement to do evil. But again, temptation takes on the meaning of testing. We're tempted by the devil for evil, but tested by God for good. I'm confident that this thought has maybe crossed some of your minds as well, uh, this question, but I have wondered from time to time, why does God 
even allow temptation. I mean, if God's so much more powerful than the evil one, why does he even allow it? Why would he even allow the evil one to mess with us? A.W. Tozer, who's a famous theologian and brilliant Christian mind, uh, he shed some light on that when he says, God never uses anyone greatly until he tests them deeply. God desires to refine all of us. And whether we like it or not, that refinement often comes in tempting times and in tempting situations. And I'm not saying that that's the only reason that God allows temptation, but it has to be the most notable. This is the epitome of using evil for good. God wants every single one of us to fully depend on him, to rely on him, to pray on the offense. It's relying and depending on him before the evil one is knocking at your door. I'll never forget this. A couple years ago, uh, one of my really close friends called me, and it was like a couple years post-graduation. He had just taken a new job. He was about two months after uh, he had been married, and he called me, and this wasn't unusual for him to call me. We talk a couple times a week, even to this day, and uh, he kind of just cut right to the chase, and he said, hey, will you pray uh, about something for me? I was like, absolutely. He's like, and I also want you to hold me accountable. I want you to ask me at least a couple times a week. Every single time that we talk, I want you to ask me about this. I'm like, sure, sure, and I'm kind of like bracing myself for like, oh my goodness, what is he going to say? Uh, he said, I, I just want to tell you, I need to confess this to somebody. There's, there's a woman that I'm working with that I'm noticing. I was like, okay, <laughs> you're going to have to be a little bit more specific than that. Like, well, what do you mean? Like, has anything happened? He's like, no, 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 nothing like that. But I notice her. When she enters a room, I kind of get excited. If, if, if I walk into a room and there's a lot of different people I could sit with, I always find myself gravitating towards her. I'm tempted to like go flirt with her. And he's like, this is embarrassing to admit to you because I'm two months into marriage at this point. But I'm just telling you that, that I'm noticing this girl and I'm asking you to ask me about it. I'm asking you to, to pray against those attacks, those temptations that I know are going to come my way because we work in such close proximity with one another. And I'm like, okay. And like, I really admired him for it because I'm like, most people would probably just keep those feelings to themselves. But I prayed for him every single day for that. And I would ask him about it a couple times a week. And I remember about six months after we had initially had that conversation, I asked him the question, I said, hey, where are you at with this? Do you still have like those same feelings that you had six months ago? And he said to me, he's like, you know what's crazy, Shay? They're gone. Like they're non-existent. Like, I don't even find myself, like, physically attracted to her anymore. Like, I could truly say that she stands no further apart than, like, this dude that I work with every single day. They're completely gone. Pray on the offense. Be prepared. Stop ignoring that the evil one exists. Rely on God's strength and God's power to overcome the enemy. God desires that we would all rely on him for everything. And it's why he gives us this model for how to pray that we so often refer to as the Lord's Prayer. The entire prayer, every single line points to the fact that God desires to have intimacy with you. That, that, that God desires to be close to you. That God desires, think about this, our creator desires to have a relationship specifically with you.